Today indeed is Palm Sunday, as you've figured out quite nicely, I bet. Today we celebrate the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, just before he'd actually be betrayed by, the same, by many of the same people who welcomed him. Uh, and of course, this Friday is Good Friday, and we celebrate then and we remember his death. But of course, Sunday's coming. And we celebrate Easter Resurrection Sunday with great joy. So I'm glad that we're going to do this. And I'm looking forward to celebrating with you guys. On, on the, in the lobby on the way out, there's going to be post, uh, cards like this, your invitations that you can take with you. Take three or four, give them to a friend, a family member, co-worker. And on the back, there's an order of things that are going to be going on from Good Friday um, through Resurrection Sunday and some other items as well. Our egg hunt, our series coming up afterward. Uh, so grab, grab two or three or four of these on your way out. There's some here in the lobby and bottom lobby as well as you exit. Because um, next Sunday is going to be a great celebration. We're going to have a great time. And uh, we, we're starting 15 minutes early because we just need more time to celebrate. And uh, we can't always have that flexibility, but we're definitely taking it Sunday. So we're looking forward to it. Would you bow with me in prayer as we commit this message to the Lord? God, you went through the greatest lengths to give us life. Lord, week by week, we've been reminded of our undeservedness, your grace, the sacrifice of Jesus, how the Trinity has worked into accomplishing our salvation. And Lord, today, we turn to our response. And Lord, would you penetrate us in our innermost being? Oh God, we lean on your grace right now and pray that your word might be illuminated before our eyes. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, next time you feel tempted to complain about an unfinished project in your home or an unfinished project at work, let me remind you of a building in Krakow, Poland, which has been given the name Skeletor. The building is a 306-foot high-rise, making it the largest building in Krakow, Poland. The problem is it's not finished. Construction began in 1975, and some six years later it was halted because they ran out of money. So here is this enormous structure in the middle of the city, and it lays incomplete, or stands incomplete. And it got the name Skeletor, if you might think, uh, from the TV show He-Man. It's just bones. It's a great embarrassment to many. Contractors have looked into trying to, to do it up or destroy it, but it costs too much money to, to keep the building, and it costs too much money to tear it down. So there is Skeletor in the middle of Krakow, Poland, unfinished. Well, God doesn't leave projects unfinished. Philippians 1.6 tells us that he who began a good work in us will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. God has begun a work in us who claim to be children of God, who are children of God, and He will complete that work. But if you're like me, there are times when you feel like this work is a halted project. There are times when you feel like, you know, I'm not progressing as I ought to. In fact, I might just be completely at a standstill. And you become discouraged and frustrated with spiritual dryness and being in this valley, if you will. Today's message is for you, and it's for me. It's a call to persevere, a call to press on, 
a call to endure in the midst of things that want to distract us. It's a call to press on and to not become careless on the front lines of the spiritual battle, but to fight the good fight. It's a call to not become casual with the realities of sin, but perseverance instead tells us how to practice aggressive repentance. Rather than being passive with obedience, persevering in our faith renews our zeal for God. When it comes down to it, our persevering in our faith demonstrates the genuineness of our salvation. As we persevere, we strive to be more like Christ and less like the world. As we persevere, we strive to point people to Christ and less to ourselves, right? As we persevere, we find greater joy, more joy in the spread of the gospel than we do in our own personal comforts. God's call is that we would not be satisfied with mediocrity, but that we might endure and persevere. Biblical perseverance is God-centered perseverance. Because when it's man-centered, we press on, we do what we can, and people look to us and say, man, what a great job you did. And you say, thanks. I sure did, didn't I? But God-centered perseverance doesn't put the focus on yourself, but on the God who enables you. You endure it so that He might receive glory and not receive it for yourself. This call to persevere, the call for God's people to persevere, or the call to the perseverance of the saints, is found in our passage, Philippians 2, for today. Would you turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18? And I'm going to read the opening parts. Verses 12 through 13 say this Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my absence, so now, not only as in my, in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The call to persevere stems out of the reality that the gospel, that the salvation that God offers is within us. We persevere because what we believe about God manifests itself in the way that we live. I've talked about that a lot, but I keep seeing it everywhere I turn in the scriptures. Paul tells them, you've obeyed what I told you when I've been present before you, and that's great. But right now, I'm absent. In fact, Paul's in prison writing this. And he tells them, now that I'm not with you, you need to do this thing even more so. And it's this, he says... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He didn't say work for your salvation. That go against everything he teaches throughout the New Testament. But work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To work out our salvation is to live in the reality that we are God's children. It, it means that our dreams, our ambitions, our hopes, our thoughts, our desires... Everything about us is lived with the reality that we are children of God. So we want to pursue the things that please Him. 
Because there in verse uh, 13 it says, For it is God who works in you, both to work and to will for His good pleasure. The purpose for which God has created you is to do things that please Him. And as we work out this salvation, as we live our lives, we do so because we want to please God above all things. But what we believe, the thing we believe, is what guides our steps. Now, some people have a belief in God, but it doesn't change the way they live. And when I was thinking about this in the sermon preparation, James 2.19 came to mind. And it says, You believe that God is one? Good. But even the demons believe that, and they tremble. Demons believe in God, and demons tremble before God. Paul tells us to work out our salvation, which comes by faith and believing, and he says to do it with trembling. So you and I have two things in common with the demon with reference to God. We believe in him, and we tremble at his presence. But the question then is, what's the difference between your belief in God and the belief of a demon? What is the difference between how you believe in God and in the way a demon believes in God? The demon-possessed man came to Jesus in Mark 2 and said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What is the difference between my belief and the belief of a devil? Well, our belief for those of us who are children of God, has brought about a conversion in our lives, a transformation. Repentance flows from our belief. Demons do not repent. They are not transformed. And we, in turn, persevere in our faith. We press on, living in the reality that we've been transformed. That's what separates me and you from a demon. The salvation that we believe has taken root in the core of our being and it manifests itself in our life. We live with the gospel directing our paths every step we take and it makes a difference in the way we live. You may have heard the slogan, once saved, always saved. And this could be a really good slogan And it could be a very bad slogan. Because if by once saved, always saved, we mean that when we place our trust in Christ, when He enters into our life and transforms who we are, and we walk in repentance and persevere in our faith, then we who are saved will be saved to the end. Then yes, we once saved will always be saved. But if by once saved, always saved, we are to think that salvation is simply a past event and doesn't affect the way that we live, there is grave danger. Because then that's just an act of belief, but no repercussion in the way we live our life out. We can't treat salvation like a tetanus shot when we got it 20 years ago, but never thought about it ever since. In Cincinnati, there's a subway system. Well, actually, there are tunnels. In the earlier parts of the 20th century, They built a tunnel system underground with the intention of putting a subway there. But 
as in the Skeletor building, this project laid unfinished. And to this very day, not one train has ever gone through that subway system in Cincinnati. It's never had a paying customer. And in fact, most people in Cincinnati don't even know it exists. It has all the looks of a subway system, but never has it functioned like one. And when Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he's saying we are not just to have the look of salvation as one who goes to church, perhaps, or one who says we're a Christian, but we are to have the function of one. We work it out. We live in the realities that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, we've uh, made it our, our desire to talk about salvation over the last four Sundays unto this one. Because we want to look at all the riches that are ours, but God's call on our lives to walk in that reality. And Paul tells these Philippians to work out their salvation, to persevere in their faith, and not so that they can simply say, look at me, I've done great, but that they can walk in a manner that pleases God. Revelation 4.12 says, Here is a call for the endurance or the perseverance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Second Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The basis is not us. The basis is God's redemptive work in our life. But truly, if we have been saved, if we have been redeemed, God is at work within us, working out this salvation. He says to do it with fear and trembling. And it's not that we're afraid of God as we live our lives, afraid He's going to strike us, but we have a reverent fear of God. We look to Him and say, God, I am undeserving of You. And you shudder in His presence, but you rejoice as well. The beginning parts of Philippians 2 talks about what Jesus did in humbling Himself. Look at verse 5 2. Paul tells them, Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though He was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our example of humility. And when we consider his great humility, it should cause us to tremble, to fear in his presence, say, God, I'm unworthy of you. Thank you for doing this for me. I'm looking forward to Good Friday for this very reason. There's a Negro spiritual that says, Were you there when, you, when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it makes me want to tremble. To think about what he went through. And Paul tells them, Live out this salvation that Jesus purchased. And let it cause you to tremble. Let it cause you to fear him. But Paul's careful with his words. Before people can say, Paul, you're telling me that I've got to earn my salvation. He gives us verse 13. He says, no, it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in us as we work out our salvation. It's so that we don't look in the mirror and say, man, you're, you're really good. You did it, man. But then we would look to the heavens and say, God, you've begun a good work in me and you're completing it. And I praise you for that. 
It is God who is at work within us for His good pleasure, to bring Him pleasure. I love how the theology of this text intersects here. Because before we start being burdened, thinking, oh God, I can't keep up this pace. I'm going to crumble. God, I don't want to be cast from your presence. God says, hey, if you're mine, I'm working in you. I'm working in you. It's me at work within you to do the things that please me. Two weeks ago, I gave a lecture at Trinity International University on a title, Hispanics in America. And afterward, one of the students came up to me and he told me, uh, he said, you know, I'm really wrestling with this idea of theology. He said, I know some guys who know theology and all they do is debate and argue about it. So it makes me not want to study theology. And I told him, I said, you know, let their example not make you not want to study theology, but let it make you not want to study theology like them. Because it's important for us to know that God has called us to live our lives with good works. He's called us to work out this salvation, to live every day for the gospel. But we also must know that it's God who gives us the power to do it. So if you are a child of God today, you're going to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God's at work within you. That's why we've got to study the text and see what it's teaching us. So I was excited to tell him that. So when we look at this passage, we think, God, I want to be like Jesus, who was God, but took the form of man, humbling himself. So God, I want to live every day with that in mind. I want to please you with every action. And God, I rejoice knowing that it's you who's working in me, and it's not up to me by myself, because I know how I'm prone to wander. So Paul's call to them is to press on in their faith and to persevere in a way that pleases God. But how do we know that we are persevering in our faith? How can we know if we're truly pressing on? Well, verses 14 through 18 18 tell us this. The first thing we see that we know we're persevering when we're looking more like Christ and less like the world. If you're looking more like Christ and less like the world every day, you're persevering in your faith. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Another way you can say it is without disputing or arguing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It's so easy to grumble. It's so easy to complain. It's so easy to argue. Yet a complaining heart is more consistent with a dying world than it is with the risen Christ. And Paul tells them, don't do that. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. Don't look like the world. Grumbling and complaining is of no value. And it's not like Christ. Did he complain once when he humbled himself by becoming a man, obedient to death, even death on a cross? He is our example So we want to be more like Christ, less like the world. Arguing is of no value. Did you hear the story last week in the news? This is hilarious. There are two countries, India and Bangladesh, that were fighting over some uh, property. It was an island in the ocean. And for 30 years, they argued, they bickered, they complained about who had rightful ownership of this island. Well, last week, the problem got solved. And there was no happy medium. They they didn't come to, to the to agreement with each other but rising sea levels rose so high that it consumed the island and now it's under the water 
So for 30 years, they argued, they grumbled, and all for naught. A complaining heart is more consistent with the dying world than it is with the risen Christ. And Paul tells them, do all things without complaining, without grumbling. So when you got that rude worker at the checkout counter, are you going to complain? When someone's got 16 items and the 15 items are less, are you going to get upset? You're always looking for an argument. Or what do you say about your supervisor when she's not around you? Do all things, all things, without arguing, complaining, grumbling, questioning, disputing. He says, because then you can be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. He calls it crooked. Think of a path that's straight. Frequently in the Bible we hear that the crooked path is the path that leads to destruction. Proverbs 4 says, a father is telling his son, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Take the straight path. Jesus tells us that the path that leads to life is narrow and straight, but the one that leads to destruction is wide and crooked. He says that's what the generation is like, the world we live in. If it's in his day, I guarantee you it's in our day crooked. But he also says it's twisted. When something's twisted, it takes a different uh, shape from its original form. So, twisted love, according to Keith Sweat, is when his girlfriend left him. He said, you got me twisted. Twisted dance is when Chubby Checker says, do the twist. It means you're not standing straight, but you're twisting. You're taking on a different form from the original form. A hanger is for a coat. When you lock your car, your keys in the car, You've got to twist that hanger to a different form to try to open it. It loses its regular shape. It loses its regular intention. And a twisted generation is twisted in morale. What God has made to be the proper shape of our morals gets twisted in a culture that is submitted to sin, to the flesh, to the devil. They're twisted perceptions of beauty in our culture. We need to recognize that beauty is not simply the externals. It's not the externals. Let me just put it that strong. In my blog a few weeks ago, I wrote that when your identity is placed on your externals, you're going to be let down frequently. You're going to attract the type of people who you ultimately don't want to attract. You're going to feel a hurt that God didn't mean for you to feel. And our culture has a twisted perception that lays everything on the way you look. The reality is we're all going to age and you're not going to look the way you looked when you were 18 the rest of your life. And if your identity is there, you're going to have a lot of grief as you age. And that's not God's intention. Beauty is of the heart. There are twisted ideas of sex and sexuality in our culture. 
Just a few weeks ago in the Red Eye newspaper, there was an article, uh, these various Hollywood couples were talking about why they didn't get married. And one of them said, I don't need a piece of paper to tell me that I'm, that I'm committed to this person. Another person said, you know, maybe someday I'll get married. And I'm thinking, well, why would you ever get married if you hate it? But that's twisted. That's crooked. That's not the way God intended it to be. We combat crooked and twisted thinking that is so prevalent in our world by having the mind of Christ. We reflect on His humility, how He humbled Himself. We stay in His Word daily. Daily, every single day. If you have children, do family devotions. Teach them the way to think in a way that honors God and pleases Him. Because as you look more like Christ and less like the world, you are showing that indeed you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is really at work within you to do it. Not only to look more like Christ, we're also to point people to Christ and not to ourselves. Move on to verse 15. It says, um, We're to be... uh, blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We are to shine as lights. Living here in Chicago, the stars at night are not big and bright. We don't get to see them very often. But if you go on to Campuana or Kids Across America or you go on a men's or women's retreat, you go out in the field at night, you get to see the stars. Last year we played ultimate frisbee at night with the light up frisbee, which is pretty sweet. But to think, if the stars and the moon were removed from the sky at night, you couldn't even see your hand in front of you because the darkness would be so thick. And when Paul tells us to shine as light, look at the parallel. The world is crooked and twisted It's got a darkness about it that's thick. But as children of God, as ones who persevere, we are light in the midst of that. But as lights, as stars, if you will, we are not movie stars that draw attention to self. We are not stars that want people to look at us. But we radiate, drawing attention to the one who hung us there. Our life is to be lived pointing people to Christ and not to ourselves. Paul says we're still, we are to hold tightly the word of life. The word of life, simply put, is the gospel. It's the word that brings life to people who are dying. And this is a call then to evangelism. When we declare the word of God, the gospel, the good news, we are becoming light in a world. If we are not declaring if we're not persevering, we are not light. You know, we can't be light when we compromise. There are many more people in this world who don't lie, who don't steal, who are honest. But they have no light to shine because they haven't been transformed by the power of the gospel. They're not pointing people to Jesus. This is a call to mission. On Thursday when I was praying through this passage... God gave me a, a pretty strong word and I didn't, for a moment I didn't even know where it came from. And I felt very strongly that God wanted me to say this one thing and at the moment I was just going to state it and say this has nothing to do with my sermon but I really believe He needs me to say it. 
until I kept studying and I recognized this came out from the text. And this is the word. We are to be lights in a dying world. We are to hold out the gospel to people. But the dying world won't hear unless we go. And if there are someone, there might be even someone or a family here today that God is telling to sell all you have and go serve Him on a foreign mission field. There may be a family here that God is saying, you need to prayerfully consider uprooting your family and going elsewhere for the sake of the gospel, to point people more to Jesus. Just think about it. There's a man in Romania today who doesn't tremble and fear in the presence of God because he doesn't know Him. Who's going to tell him? There's a girl who lives in the streets of Sao Paulo, Brazil with her older sister and she has no salvation to work out with fear and trembling. So someone tells her. There's a mother in Liberia, isn't there not, Pastor Wilson, who has children who doesn't know the Lord and needs to hear and perhaps God might call you to go and preach the gospel. People, we've been redeemed by the blood. This is our, our joyful response. So you might need to think long and hard about that. Is God telling you to leave in order to point people to Him? Paul says, so that in the day of Christ Jesus, if you're doing these things, I may be proud that I did not run in vain. For Paul, a life that's ran in vain is when people are not pursuing Christ. His ministry is in vain if people aren't persevering. Do we have that mindset that our life is lived in vain if we're not living it for the gospel? Paul tells them, point people to Christ. Don't point them to yourself. But he also says, you know you're persevering when you're rejoicing in the spread of the gospel and less, rejoicing more in the spread of the gospel and less in your own comforts. Consider this in verse 17. Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. A reminder, Paul's writing from prison. He's there, awaiting a sentence, perhaps. Not knowing what the outcome of this imprisonment might be. Will it be death? Will it be release? In chapter 1, he says he really believes it's going to be life. He doesn't think he's going to die in prison. But he says, in verse 17, but even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrifice, he says, I am glad. He's glad because the Philippians are living the very thing he preached to them. He's sitting, he's sitting in prison and he's just thrilled to know that this church is persevering in their faith. He says, I rejoice and I'm glad. He says, likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul, you're in prison. Be happy for me. I'm preaching the gospel here too. He said in chapter 1 that the soldiers are starting to find out about Christ. 
But this idea is so counter to the world we live in. We value comfort so much, it becomes an idol. We yearn for physical comfort. We don't want to be uncomfortable. The more fluffy, the better. We love our financial comforts. As long as I got X amount of money, I'm cool. And if I could double that even better, triple it still. But is that our security? We love our mental comforts. I just don't want the stress, so I'm not going to deal with it. I don't want to worry about it. I don't want to think about how these things are going to happen, God, if I'm obedient to you. So I'm just not going to be obedient. We can honor our comforts so much that we put that up and above the spread of the gospel. Do you value and find greater joy to see the gospel proclaimed to people who don't know it than you do to find yourself feeling more and more comfortable every day? Paul's words to us are strong and they're sharp. We are to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. In the movie Braveheart, there's a scene towards the end where a guy named Robert the Bruce betrays William Wallace, the main character. And part of this betrayal was so that Robert the Bruce and his family might have more power in their country. And they can come to a place where they can perhaps even rule it. But after his betrayal, he was filled, the betrayal, he was filled with guilt and shame, wishing he hadn't done it and wishing it hadn't played out the way it had. And he runs to his father, who is the mastermind behind this, this deceptiveness. And he tells his father that this was all a waste. And the father says, you've gained much for your country and for your family. You're going to have great power. And he tells his father, land, title, men, power, I don't want, I have nothing. None of this is worth it. And the father says, nothing? The son replies, I have nothing. Men fight for me because if they do not, I throw them off my land and I starve their wives and children. Those men who bled on the ground red fought for William Wallace. He fights for something that I never had and I took it from him when I betrayed him. I saw it in his face on the battlefield and it's tearing me apart. He's struggling here and his father tells him, all men betray, all lose heart. Then he makes this statement to his father. I don't want to lose heart. I want to believe as he does. I will never be on the wrong side again. He says, I want to believe as he does. Because he saw that William Wallace believed with a conviction that he can die for. It affected every ounce of his being in his life. And people saw that in William Wallace and followed his example. And Robert the Bruce is shamed by it. And he says, I want what he has. So I want to go back to the question I posed to you earlier. How do you believe? What is the difference between your belief and trembling in God and that of a demon? Well, as I said it earlier, it may be that our belief is a faith that leads to conversion. It's a God bringing about in our lives repentance. It's Him at work within us. 
and therefore we persevere. That's what our belief is like. It's not of us, it's of God at work within us. May the gospel create in you an unwavering devotion to the things then that please God. And we know we're persevering when we look more like Christ and less like the world. We know we are persevering and working out our salvation with fear and trembling. When we're pointing people more to Christ and less to ourselves. And we know this when we find greater joy when the gospel is being uh, spread than even in our own comforts being spread. To people of God, for four weeks we've talked about, and here the fifth week, what it means to be redeemed by the blood. We're undeserving of God's mercy. We learned the first week how we are sinners to the very core. And apart from God, we are helpless. But God in His great mercy reached down and offered us life. And He's given us the faith to believe in Him. And we work it out then. We live in this reality every day with fear and trembling. Looking more like Christ and less like this world we live in. Would you go with that exhortation today and embrace the cross in a fresh way Show yourself approved. Press on. Because God, who is at work within you, will complete it if you are genuinely His. And He doesn't leave projects unfinished. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, we... We want to live. We want to believe in a fresh way. God, our hope is secure in you. And in that reality, God, would we live? God, renew our minds. May we, may we look at Christ's example and not murmur, not grumble. Will we not conform to a twisted world? Lord, may we shine in the midst of darkness. And Lord, would our life's devotion be to the things that please you? Because God, I know when we're living in that way, we're living for the very thing we were created for. So God, we commit ourselves to you this morning and we give you praise, our glorious Lord. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us as we continue to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us by his blood. Lord, please come forward.